Hey, it's Sky Brothers here. View from the cheap seats this week. We have an unbelievable guest. Uh, he played for in the NFL, had over ten thousand six hundred yards rushing, and now he's got a great acting career. He's Thomas Q. Jones. Man, did you have fun on the show? Man, I had a blast on this show. Thank we you so much deep. for inviting me. Yeah, we got super deep, man. It was early in the morning out here in the West Coast. Man, Listen, y'all, got man, my, y'all got my brain working early, man. Talk so. Issues. I'm yeah. talking issues. I'm saying, look, we got so deep, we put her butt to sleep. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Juggernaut Jack Snaps out there. Welcome to Twisting the Wind. My name is Johnny Pemberton, and this is the natural sound of my voice. This is the natural 98.6.2.5.3.2.1. J right there, right now. Here we are. We've got sales at Kmart, Walmart, all the marts. Yard Mart. You're gonna learn what that means in about two years. <clears throat> You're here. You're listening to it. Thanks so much for being here. I'm going to slowly... Stop the madness. Okay. Actually, I didn't slowly stop it. I just sort of just de... I just instantly de-escalated it. Um, I just instantly de-escalated it. Instantaneous de-escalation. That's the name of this podcast today, a.k.a. The Executive Buffet, a.k.a. Hands on the Branch, a.k.a. Twisting the Wind with Johnny Pemberton. All those other words also with me. But I just didn't put them on there because I'm going to put it on at the end of the thing I just said. So what's the point of doing a with, with or without without the thing that um, it's already there? Okay, uh, coming at you live here right now to a microphone. Um, thank you for uh, 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 dear listeners. Maybe well, it's probably just a listener. You're probably a singular person, aren't you? You're probably not. Uh, 
listening with other people. Are you? Do you do that? Do you get? Do you gather around the uh, the old audio campfire? Ah, oh, that's a dumb thing to say, isn't it? I think that's dumb. I just said. I'm a bit distracted because I feel like the tone of things right now, not the tone like the tone like the tone of the rhetoric that's that's leading up to war, not that. It's more like the the actual tone, the 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 the, the timber, the timbre, however you want to say it. Uh, I don't like. I don't. It's it's different. It's not. I feel like I'm sort of in an airplane right now, and I'm talking over a loudspeaker. Do you feel that? Is there sort of a, a, some air being sort of sucked out, creating a sort of a, a pop? It's like a... Not like that. That sounds like a hawking of a of an of an attitude in there. I just feel like there's like there's like a, a high pressure bubble around the sound right now. I kinda like it. It's good, but it's it's also just a little disquieting. Is that a word? I don't know. Here we are on Twisting the Wind. Thank you for being here. Thank you for gathering around your listening uh, your listening vestibule and really just digging in. This is a real hot, good, sweet one here. I'm coming at you live into the microphone, as always, but I am in a, I'm in a hotel room in Chattanooga, a name I can't spell right anytime and don't care because it's a silly old word. It's not silly. It's, it's based on Native American word like every other... Well, that, that that's an irony, isn't it? How many words that we have that come from my people that we um, sort of willfully destroyed and displaced? Weird, huh? We're still. Uh, they were they were pretty good. They were good. They just they were good for words only. Yeah, Indians words only. I just said Indian. It's okay. Uh, so here in this Chattanooga hotel room, it's sort of um, it's, it's stunningly bleak. I don't know what's going on in this place. It's this. I'm I'm staying at the. Uh, the Sheraton, which uh, I think that word sounds nice. Maybe that's an old Native American word, Sheraton. It means um, place that seem, that appears to be nice but is actually shitty. That could be what it is. A uh, place with art that doesn't match the condition of the room. Because I'm looking at something that looks sort of like a, a weird oil painting done by someone with a, with a certain stage of, a, what do you call that, disease of the brain that's very sad and terrifying. Um like a bipolar painting here by by Munk. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that right. Either way, that's where I am right now. And it's a little bit it's a little bit weird, a bit out of sorts, so to speak. The sorts the sorts of sports that we're out of out of I got I've got no cohorts to just to, to to sport of. To speak of to to spike of a uh to spike of a bike, if you had a bike, you when you when you spike the bike then there would be an animated trike. Well, that's a three-wheeled item that you don't want to get involved with unless you are uh, got something to speak of, which drapes, uh, drapes, drapes the point. It uh, begs the question of uh, the answer to where where are you going? Where have you been? Kuvadis, how you doing, friend? Don't pee in the bed unless you tell the counselor that it's going to happen because they'll be prepared for that. Because it's it's where are you going, Kuvadis? Uh, you've got buck teeth, and it's okay. So th- that that's that's the whole thing I was trying to struggle with. I guess I should probably, before I get into any kind of a diatribe, any kind of a dialectic, I should uh, just give you the, the five points of the star here. Um, actually, I prefer a seven-pointed star like the Maersk logo, the Maersk shipping logo. If anybody works for Maersk who's listening, I don't know why. For for many 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 years of my life and still to this day, uh, something about that that nice sort of bluish seven pointed star that just makes me want to wear it as a t shirt. 
or a hat or underwear, but I feel like t-shirts the best. Oh God, a jacket would be cool. If you work for Marisk, hit me up. Uh, but you probably don't work for Marisk because that means you're a member of like the weird shipping Illuminati that exists in the country. Either way, here's the five points. Number one, thank you for listening. Number two, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or whoever, however else you consume. Three, please subscribe. I think you can probably do that all in one fell swoop. So three and two could be combined. Really, I actually should just make one the intro to the numbers and those should be just the first one. And so there, that was number one. Uh, number two or four, if you want to say it, please donate to the podcast. It's necessary to keep things going. Feral Audio is a gem among uh, lesser jewels. It's no, it's more of like an opal among blood diamonds. Um, that makes sense. So donate. If you don't want to donate to my podcast, donate to donate to Farrell in general, or donate to other podcasts on the network that um that are also really great. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Listen to it. It's an outstanding podcast. Matt Matt is uh I've said this before and I'll say it again. Matt's uh like a like an actual journalist. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a great podcast. Uh, there's also, um, there's, there's so many more, but I'm just, I'm hyping that one right now. I'm cho- choosing to, to do a laser focus. So yeah, donate through the feral, through, to yeah, Charlie, D, um, number, number boy. Do that. Do it. Uh, do that. Uh, if you know Chris Cooper, the actor, tell him to listen, tell him I want to have him on. Thank you. Uh, so that's that's that number. Also, if you're buying stuff on Amazon.com, which you probably are because you're a person who uses the internet to consume podcasts because you're on a bike right now or you're in a car that you don't like, but it still works enough to listen to stuff on, you're probably acquiring some some modicum. I don't think I'm using that word right, but I like the way it sounds, so I'm going to keep using it. Uh, modicum of product via Amazon.com. What you can do is you go to feralaudio.com, you click on the Twisting the Wind page, and you click on this huge-ass, elongated, sideways button fucker that says shop on Amazon. And what that does is it gives us a kickback. So as your normal purchasing, your normal shop shops, you just you just kick it into that zone right there, buddy. Okay, and then we get a little piece of that, and that helps. That's like a it's like a nice passive way to support something that you should be supporting actively, anyways, because you're getting it for free, and it's a fucking high quality audio, uh, audio product. Ooh, I said it. Ooh, ooh, I said. I'm gonna say this is. A, I'm talking into a uh, an empty Starbucks cup now. <laughs> okay. So those those being said, and I think number five or maybe number three, depending on how you combine these things, is uh, uh, spread the word. Um, tell tell a friend to listen, and because I think this is a a high quality audio product that uh, deserves um, to be played over. I don't know about loudspeakers, but you know maybe at the airport instead of airport news. Da, 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 da. Da 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 na. Ah, so much to talk about. What I can't get over is being in this hotel in the Sheraton. Is it's weird because when I shot Twenty One Jump Street in New Orleans many many well not many years ago three years ago whatever that was. It was they put us up also in a Sheraton, and a Sheraton. I don't know if you know. I think it's an old Algonquin word for vertical prison, 
And it sounds like that's the thing about that. There's, there's like this type of complaining that people do that I'm doing right now that sounds fucking absurd. Because it's like, yo, you're complaining about staying in a nice hotel. Oh, that must have been so hard, but you want to stay in a hotel. And guess what? It is. Because here's why. It's not that, it's not the, uh, it's not the fact that the place is dirty or bad or anything like that. It's two things. One of them is you can't open the fucking windows. You can't open the windows. You can't get any goddamn air in there. There's no air because there are all these hermetically sealed boxes that are, you have, it has to be locked down otherwise they can't get insurance on the property because they, God forbid some person should try to smoke out the fucking crack of a window they allow you to open after they've stopped drilled it with goddamn fucking wood screws or something, you know? That and they're, they're just, who knows? It's the like air conditioning. It's all this other bullshit. It's just the thing where, I hate it so much. What I'm saying is, yeah, I'm complaining about that, but I would honestly rather, I'd rather be on the first floor of a shitty motor lodge for three weeks. I really would than a quote unquote first class accommodation of a, of a Sheraton nice hotel. And if I, if I get backlash from Sheraton, so be it. Actually, that would be, that would be awesome because that would mean like they care enough to even care enough, but they don't. So, but the, but that's one thing. That's just one thing. But the thing is, the thing the thing that this is what gets me is the Sheraton here smells exactly like the one in New Orleans, which also smells exactly like the one I caught a I caught a whiff. I I was in Austin for the uh, for some comedy festival and we were dropping some people off at a Sheraton. P- people were staying everywhere because there's there's not enough hotel rooms in that city for those those festivals. I dropped some people off at the Sheridan and when those fucking, when those doors open, those, those, uh, the doors, the electronic glass doors that open, the motion doors, they open. I was in the van and the, sort of that, that vestibule, that, uh, if I said vestibule twice, I have. Sorry about that. That portico, that, that little valet drive spot where you can drive through and not get wet. And you can have someone help, needlessly help you with your bags. When the, I was sitting in that van, those doors open, and I get this fucking, I get hit with this scent cloud. This big old scent wave just comes rolling out of the Sheraton in Austin, Texas. This is like two years after 21 Jump Street. And I just like this big fucking spank of memory in the face. Just a, oh, whoa, instantly transported back to that place in time. Like just instantly, effortlessly, Wow. That is, what I'm trying to say is, that's the power of scent, man. Wow. <laughs> also, whoa, it sucks, too, because, like, what, do you think do you think Sheraton has a scent? Do they have, a like, a special scent? Like, we gotta, we gotta have, they all gotta smell the same, guys, because if they don't smell the same, then people won't recognize them when they had that good experience at a Sheridan and then they'll when they come back like, Oh yeah, this reminds me of that time I was I was um oh that prostitute I used to love so much I would have sex with when I visited there for business. It reminds me of her and maybe she's here and maybe that's it. I don't know. Or maybe it's just because they use the same materials to build it because they buy them from the same contractor. So it's like a wholesale thing where, oh, if you buy 400 units of uh, flooring and you don't multiply that across all your platforms of franchises, then we'll give you a bulk discount. And is that it? I don't know. I think it's actually, I think they have a scent. They have a fucking scent they're spraying in the goddamn 
an event, and they know it. It's like Disneyland. They know it. They they put that they put that cinnamon and sugar on a baking sheet and put a fan in front of it, and they blast it into the main street because it makes you it makes you feel good. So the Sheridan, I think, it has the opposite effect on me. I don't. Well, it's not bad. It just reminds you of a time where of a different time. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't want a memory. Sometimes you don't want a vi, a, a very visceral memory to spank you in the face when you're just trying to you're exhausted checking into a hotel or just some sometimes you just don't want that memory present like get away i already did you get back we already had our time what are you why are you coming and invading my present moment smell memory i think i have a smell memory problem i think that's what it is i i have my smell memories are uh my smell memories are too intense I, I am, I'm actually planning on going to see a doctor about that. Uh, I think they can do a thing where they, they lessen the, uh, the synesthetic connection. Is that a thing? Yeah, definitely. That's a thing. They give it a couple snips. They just kind of take a hacksaw and give it a couple rubs so you don't get that, that blast from the past when you get that stink blast. <laughs> that's how my grandpa used to laugh. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's the, uh, that's the uh, the 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 four one uh, Q tip moment right there. I'm brought to you by Q tip. That's the four one one moment. It's called clean out your ears with Q tip. If you haven't heard, then you haven't heard that Q tips are not to be used for cleaning out your ears. So continue on using them because you have damaged your ears using them. So you can keep using them because you haven't heard. You haven't heard because your hearing's damaged because of the amount of wax and you're not doing it right. So there you go. Brought to you by Q-Tip, the thing that you've been using wrong all these years and continue to use wrong because you just did what I said because you heard, you didn't hear what you heard. And my guest is amazing. I don't want to say a whole lot about him because I feel like I'm going to belabor the point and it's going to it's going to sound bad. I'm going to try to be articulate about something I'm not articulate about. But what I will say is that Lewis McAdams is an, a very intelligent, incredibly interesting person who's made has been a force for change in all sorts of arenas, all sorts of unlikely arenas, and is a super hip dude. In all ways possible. Uh, I'm just going to play the interview. <laughs> That's it. You're going you're gonna to like what you, you're going to like what you hear. I guarantee it. Man's, man's here house. Oh my God. So Lewis McAdams, you are the co-founder of Fuller. Right. And how, so how did that get started? Uh, it got started as a performance art piece uh, called Friends of the Los Angeles River in 1985 or 1986. I'm always a little vague about when it actually started. <laughs> or the, and it, but it started as a performance at the place called the Wallen Boyd Theater, which doesn't exist anymore in downtown L.A. And a, a series of, uh, of performances sponsored by MoCA when, right at the beginning when MoCA had just started and was... Um, had a had a performance curator at that time and they put on this series called angels flight and one of the pieces they asked me to do a piece because somebody told them i was a performance artist i just moved to la from what where did you move from i lived before in san francisco and in bolinas mainly bolinas which okay. is a little hippie village north north of san francisco right. where i spent the 1970s but then as my marriage was breaking up, so I spent much more time in San Francisco, and that was the heyday of performance art when 
performance was basically anything you could do that you were brave enough to do. <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, now to me, performance is just a small branch of the entertainment business. Right. But at that point, there were some really amazing people, from Chris Burden to Paul McCarthy to Barbara Smith to a dozen other amazing artists. Anyway, so that's. For instance, Los Angeles River consisted of two or three different things. One of them was going to the... I, I went to the confluence of the Los Angeles River and the Arroyo Seco coming down from Pasadena, maybe a mile south of where we are right now, and a mile and a half maybe, and asked the river if we could speak for it in the human realm, and it didn't say no, so Fowler started at that moment. And it's, you know, I've always seen it that way as a performance piece. I call it a 40-year artwork to bring the river back to life and still do sometimes, but 40 years was vastly underestimating how long it was going to take, I think. Although with Alternative 20, the locally preferred plan that the Army Corps is just uh, green-lighted, um, things are starting to happen at a faster rate than they have for the first last 25 years. Because right now is a pretty special time. If I think I'm right, there's a... Uh, Fuller just got a big, a big grant from the federal government, right? No, not okay. A lot of people think that. <laughs> I mean, I wish it were true. There you go. So I'm starting with disinformation, so I can be corrected. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's uh, many people have said that to me, and I wish that it were true. But basically, the Corps of Engineers and the City of Los Angeles, the Corps of Engineers basically acquiesced to the cities of Los Angeles's desire to do the most ambitious re habitat restoration prog project that they were capable of doing, mm -hmm. which is about 11 miles along the river, the natural bottom part of the river where we're sitting now. The reason you see all these huge trees in the middle of the river is because they're, they're, that's, this is the main part of the river that doesn't have concrete on the bottom. And so, so there was a, several years the Corps did a study called the Arbor Study and looked at many alternatives for habitat restoration. And they chose one that was the least expensive one, and the city of Los Angeles and the citizens of Los Angeles rose up as one and uh, demanded that the Corps rethink what they were doing, which was really the reason they went with the choice that they went with was because it was cheaper. What year is this? This is, this is now. Okay, so this is, so this is the current thing. We're talking about the last yeah. months in the last couple mm -hmm. of years, last year. And... Amazing, and with the real strong support of Mayor Garcetti, who's a very strong river advocate, went to Washington three times. <laughs> it's okay. This is a musical interlude. Anyway, so um, the the with the strong support of Mayor Garcetti, who went to Washington three times to lobby with the president about this, the Corps of Engineers, in an unprecedented move, turned around their minds, changed their minds, went with the more expensive and the more ambitious project. And that project will cost about $1.8 billion. And where that money will come from, nobody knows yet. The city is on the hook for approximately 60% of it. The federal government is on the hook for approximately 40% of it. And where that money is going to come from, I think so, if, if there is a water bond issue, mm -hmm. if the governor signs it, that will has about $75 million in it for river restoration, which is a, a start. So that some of that will go toward the uh, the Army Corps' what the yes. money well, they need to change called, it. Now it's called the locally preferred alternative. For okay. years it was called the Alternative 20. But now there is no alternatives. This is the project. Got it. And 
Friends of Los Angeles role has basically been an advocacy role from the beginning on this project. And as, the, as it went on, Friends of the Los Angeles River gave the city, a donor, a major donor to, to Folar, gave Folar a million dollars to give to the city, to give to the Corps of Engineers so they could finish their study. Like the form of a giant gift basket, or is it something like, sort of uh, like that's a... That's funny. Uh, okay. It was really in the form of one of those oversized checks you, okay. know, that you always see at press conferences. That, we you couldn't think of anything better than right. that. Right. But it, I must admit that it's become an increasingly cliche-ridden uh, gesture. But is it, this was for the Army Corps? The Mon- Yeah, they, were, they had run out of money to finish this study because they've been at it, the study, for seven years mm-hmm. and spent $10 million dollars and it was basically bankrolled by earmarks and then when the whole earmark thing has started to fall apart they didn't have any other way to get money okay so friends of the los angeles river raised a million dollars and gave it to them so they could finish their study because we knew that the study would come out in support of what our goals in the turn restoring the los angeles river and that's what this how the study came out supporting our goals the right. ultimate study and they're just dotting their P's and Q's, and uh, and right now, and they're going to that will then go to the Office of Management and Budget, and then if it gets, which is basically the White House's budget makers, then if that happens, then the then the Congress has to pass it, mm-hmm. and if that when when and if that happens, there will actually be a formal plan for restoration of taking out concrete for 11 miles of the Los Angeles River and restoring habitat. <coughs> It's pretty long. There's a lot of things that have to happen still. Yeah, yeah. So and everybody's not, perfectly confident that they're going to happen, but they're going to take longer. I mean, you have to think about, or one has to think about the Los Angeles, restoring the Los Angeles River as like building a subway system. I mean, it's a generational yeah. move. It's not going to, I thought it would happen faster, but now I understand. I mean, there's so many complicated issues of governance and money and mm-hmm. will and imagination and dreams and all these have to line up and friends of los angeles rivers our goal our process our technique is to line things up I mean, we have now over ten thousand people on our email lists and social media lists mm-hmm. and we can turn out a lot of letters when if need be so when it first started <clears throat> sorry so when the fuller first started in the whole when you first moved here and saw the river and decided to start something when we're speaking for the river was it in the same condition as it is now or is it worse or better or what was well, it like it's a really back interesting then? question i mean there's a i mean people are saying in the last two or three years people have come up to me dozens of times and say isn't the river the river's really looking great you guys are doing or us we're doing a wonderful job and the truth is, the river hasn't changed really at all. It's okay. people's attitudes about the river have changed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so, and, but that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that in the mid-1980s, more or less around the time Folar started, and it was just basically simultaneity, the uh, Heal the Bay, which was just getting going, um, threatened to sue the city of L.A. if they didn't start cleaning up their stormwater runoff in the, into Santa Monica Bay. Mm-hmm which they ultimately, the city of L.A. was forced to do. And, they, and there was this part of the river where, which you can, you're can you looking at right now, which doesn't have concrete on the bottom. Mm-hmm. A, that's an, a, a stretch of about 10 or 11 miles, essentially paralleling Griffith Park. Um, then that, that part of the river never had concrete on the bottom because 
the water table was too high. And when the Army Corps of Engineers started to repave, I mean, channelize the river, they left this un unchannelized because they were worried that the water table would push the concrete up from the bottom, which is turning out to actually be happening now. So really the whole the reason this stretch of the river is so pretty and beautiful is essentially because they didn't want to, it was easier to do it this way, yes. way back when? Yes, safer <laughs> for what they were trying to do. There safer was no idea of ecology or anything like that. Got it. And all these years since the 1930s, basically after the river was channelized, the Corps of Engineers and the County Department of Public Works, anything that was living was bulldozed. So right. there was nothing, this was just a wasteland. And that began to change in the, when Folar started. And, but, but it also had to do with this, with this uh, Hill the Bay's loss, threatened lawsuit. And so the, with the lawsuit happened, the city had to build, and the court, the city had to build a huge water reclamation plant in the Sepulveda Basin in the middle of the San Fernando Valley. And that, in the law of unintended consequences, after all, there was all this water now coming down the river from this water reclamation plan. We're talking at this point like 60 million gallons a day of mm -hmm. water, which you can't see because the, there's, there's a sandbar. All these trees are on a sandbar. Right. And the channel is on the other side of the mm -hmm. sandbar. This, all this water started and combined with Folar's fighting to keep the county and the Corps from bulldozing everything led to all these trees in the river. None of these, there's not a tree in the river that was planted by anybody. Wow. It's all nature that did it itself. And if you, and it's one of the more fascinating things of viewing it over the years is the river in its channelized form still tries to act like a river that curves. And rivers right. don't want to go in straight lines. Yeah. It's against their nature. And they imitate a river that doesn't have to go in straight lines by, by going in smaller, smaller straight, non-straight lines. So this, this area where we're sitting is the most beautiful part of the L.A. River, I think most people would say. And it's about 10 or 11 miles. And it's very alive. We've, we did a, we the, with, sponsored, sponsoring the County Museum of Natural History, did a, the first biota of the Los Angeles River and uh, identified over 200 species of birds in the Los wow. Angeles River. Well, 95% of the habitat of Los Angeles has been destroyed, so the river, this part of the river, is really the only wetlands that exist mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. Is there any idea what the uh, this area? Because this is a natural watershed, right? This is a natural. Uh, the, Los Angeles County is essentially the watershed of the Los Angeles River. Got it. Except for Antelope Valley, which is on the other in the high right. desert, and a little part of Santa Monica, which is just drains directly into the bay rather than goes to the river. Would some form of this river exist without, if it hadn't have been, hadn't have been carved out when it was? Yes, but it would have been a very different form, and okay. I think that it's very that one of the more difficult things for people to grasp is that when the river before the river was channelized, which mm -hmm. began in the, after a couple of major floods in the late 1930s, before that the river was not a river in the sense that we think of it with banks, channel banks. Uh -huh. It was basically vast wetlands. Like if you stand up in some place like Sunset Plaza in West Hollywood and right. like sort of southwest, all that area is all wetlands. Was it was wow. all wetlands? I mean, the only way you could get to the coast was on a on a foothill. Excuse me, on a foothill road, which was Sunset Boulevard. Ultimately, oh, I didn't. I had no idea. That's yeah, <laughs> so, but, that, but that's the thing is that you can't. 
you know, there wasn't like a ch- the, the, what we think of as a river channel. It right. was all this huge, vast wetland. Sometimes the river would come out in what's now Marina del Rey. Sometimes the river would come out in the ocean in what's now Long Beach or San Pedro. Because it just changed its course when when there was yeah. when there's when it's drought. There's not not much right. going on, but when there's a lot of water, it all right. of a sudden decides where it's going to go. Precisely. So. Got it. You know, I mean, there were many, many people living here before the Europeans got here. There were, this was one of the largest Native American populations in North America. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. There was estimated 10,000 people were living here when the, when the Europeans arrived in 1789. So, there, were, you know, and they lived, this was their, how they survived. I mean, they didn't leave monuments, but they left, they left memories. And... There are actually still around the ghosts and some of the real life Indian people, Native Americans, are still around here. What uh, what tribe is that? Uh, it's not tribes. Or, I mean, that was destroyed by the missions. Okay. So they're sort of like clans. I Clan. Guess, one way you might say it. Right. There's there's a couple of different basic languages, systems, and a couple of different different basic cultures, but they're sort of artificially exist because they were so destroyed by the priests. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting questions that I'm always wondering about that nobody's ever really answered satisfactorily is what was the name of the river before the European priests got here? <laughs> you know, there was, I think that the San Gabriel River and the Los Angeles River were basically one system mm-hmm. and they were when they were chan- until they were channelized in the 1930s. You know, now they are one system, but they weren't I mean, they were a, a system before, and now, now, before that, but now there are two different rivers. One's the San Gabriel, it goes down to that Long Beach, and Long Beach, and the Los Angeles River sort of parallels it. Because they've been created to, yeah, to be as such, right? I mean, basically, the whole channelization of the river had one purpose, which is to get the water to the ocean as fast as possible. The storm, the idea that in a Mediterranean climate, that you might not want to save that water never occurred to anyone. <laughs> so the, the system was, was set up to get the water to the ocean as fast as possible. How is that possible that that never was a thing where people thought, oh, this is fr- there's fresh water coursing through where we live and we need that fresh water, but let's not divert any of it or save any of it. It just seems like counterintuitive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. <laughs> is yeah, that? I mean, that's part of what our work is, is changing yeah. people's minds. I mean, the, the poet William Carlos Williams said a new world is a new mind and when I started Friends of Los Angeles River I thought that basically all I had to do was convince people the river could be better but I quickly realized that I first had to convince people the river even existed uh-huh. and one of the reasons that it was difficult was because nobody thought of it as a river by the, 19, by the 1980s they were, even on maps it just said flood control channel and I got into this this argument I don't know if you ended up with one of these calendars or stuff Oh, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> um, there's a cat. I, I got into there. There was an El Nino winter in the mid 1990s, and the Army Corps of Engineers and the County Department of Public Works used that as an excuse to bulldoze every living thing in the river. This is what year? In the mid 1990s. Jeez. And what, what? What was the idea behind that? Like what? To make the water go faster to the really? ocean. Yeah. Oh, was it having problems getting there fast enough? <laughs> In some people's eyes, it was. Oh, really? But this was preparing for an El Nino winter okay. where they thought there might be huge floods. Which, right. So, I, when I learned about this, I mean, I was already doing Friends of the Los Angeles River, but it didn't. It was basically just me and a couple other friends of mine, and we. 
I decided that I was going to stand in front of the bulldozers while they were working in Verdugo Wash and all this little bit, little bit upstream from where we are now. And um, I got into this weird situation where I was like sl- slogging around in this mud, mm-hmm. standing in front of bulldozers that were trying to turn away, and there all these birds, all their nests were gone because all the trees had been just bulldozed. And it was just an insane scene. And it led to me getting, they finally stopped trying to bulldoze because it was, I, I was really not paying enough attention. It was kind of a dangerous situation. And because I kept slipping in this muck, you know, and mm-hmm. falling down in front of these bulldozers by accident. But it ultimately led to them stopping, stopping bulldozing for that day and getting me a meeting with the head of the County Department of Public Works. And we had this meeting at the County Public Works in Alhambra and no no sorry i think it was at Xavier Slavsky's office at the civic center but in any case um i had this meeting with this guy that ran public works is it the Xavier every, guy pardon Xavier no it was oh, okay. this guy his name was Harry Stone i think that sounds like a more evil yeah. name yeah, yeah like no, these, <laughs> Harry Stone <laughs> yeah but um we had this meeting, and every time he would refer to the river as a flood control channel, I would interrupt him and say, no, river. And we got quickly got to this point of us screaming at each other, river, channel, river, channel. Right. But I knew that I was right about that, that, that we had to redefine what the river was because uh-huh. people didn't think of it as a river anymore. And that basically was what Friends of the Los Angeles River did for about the first 25 years or 20 years in some, you know, some imaginary number. As people slowly, slowly, slowly began to see that there was a river here, and you know, fast forward a couple of more years, and people are starting to say, "Well, where's the river? Where's the river? How do we get down to the river? Mm-hmm. Can you swim in the river? Are there fish in the river? Are there kayaks in the river? You know?" And so, for instance, the Los Angeles River, because we always take a lead position, or at least so far in its existence. We decided that but people are always talking about it for several years, like someday there'll be restaurants here and someday right. there'll be... We decided just to go ahead and do it. And this was created in, what, how many days? A couple of weeks. <laughs> we just rented this space from the from the manufacturers on the other side of the corrugated uh, container and just set up whatever it is that we're doing here, which is the first oasis on the los angeles river yeah it's very simple but it it works yeah no it's it's been a it was designed and thought through by our director of development's husband who is a contractor and he just this is his vision i mean and it's been very i mean we haven't made a lot of money but we're certainly we i was talking to laura about it a little while ago and more than two thousand people have come through here since we seven weeks ago yeah, it's pretty. It's very new. Yeah, no, this and it's the first. I mean, I'm sure there'll be many more things on the yeah. LA River, but this is the first. This, you know, that this will establish. This establishes a form. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know how it will evolve from the from here on out, but I do know that people are really grateful for this thing. People are happy to come. There's lots of repeat customers, and people are starting to do what we're doing here which is using the river this part of the river as a meeting place yeah when i started friends of the los angeles river i always envisioned the work as being about community and gathering people down by the river because that's what humans have done from time immemorial and that's what's beginning to happen is that people are starting to have meetings here people are meeting other people here 
this you know people have never seen that you know we have bands on saturday night we're open from eight to four on saturday and sundays mm-hmm. we have bands on saturday night and a beer and wine non-profit license and you know the bands are kind of local and enthusiastic and all are willing mm-hmm. to play for free and it's been a really great experience which laura is basically in charge of so I think I've maybe heard you talk about this or just also in general people talking about the LA River about the whole idea of turning things around to face the river as opposed to because right now I mean listeners probably don't know this or there's a lot of people outside of LA who listen to the podcast so the LA River like it snakes through this area where a big part of it is just there's industrial uh, warehouses and manufacturing areas that are backed up against the river yeah. which is it's just it's the only place I think I've ever been where you have something with its back to the the most beautiful thing in the whole area. Yeah, it's, so it's a, about trying to flip it around, right? To be like essentially, but yeah. you have to flip up people's minds around to, to to do that. I mean, the reason that it is, I think, is because the railroads came in in the eighteen seventies, mm-hmm. and the eight and the railroads want to be in a place that was flat, you know, so they could conduct their operations, mm-hmm. and the whole river became soon became lined with factories. After it started with the railroads, and then factories moved into the city with the railroads. And pretty soon there was no access to the river from any point. And pretty and also, the the river support supported a much smaller town than actually exists. I mean, the the river, the population of L.A. when the river was the source of water, that was about two hundred thousand people. Oh, that's less. And <laughs> so that's not what we have here. We have two million just living in the floodplain. Mm-hmm. You know, so how that will play out is I mean zoning changes are good difficult to accomplish uh, getting people to well I, I think actually the warehouse situation is will, in a way will take care of itself because the, these uh, warehouses are rapidly becoming something else yeah but you mean because just the, the change over become more residential as opposed to being uh, as opposed to being like factories or whatever they are yeah I, I mean you're seeing it like the building next door to here where we're mm-hmm. sitting it's just sold for 4.2 million dollars really you know, and that's and that's not <laughs> going to be continual uh, continued uses and, and for manufacturing yep. I mean basically all the zoning here is industrial zoning yeah the railroads because the, all the lands along the river here were basically railroad lands and some of them still are there's still one vast rail yard in the city of LA which is across the river from Union Station yeah Taylor Yard right is that what no, it is Taylor or? Yard is what you're facing now. okay that's an that's another project but the, the piggyback yard as we call it is a hundred and twenty five acres of right across the river from Union Station mm-hmm. and it's the last active rail yard in the city and it's something that we've worked very hard for our decade already to try to move them out mm-hmm. and they're they have they have committed to thinking about it but in the meantime committed to thinking about it yeah, is that that's like i've never heard that's pretty uh <laughs> that's pretty good language that there we're committed to thinking about it is dealing, that <laughs> dealing with the railroads dealing with the corps of engineers yeah. dealing with all these vast bureaucracies you just start to think in slowed down terms because that, that was a huge a huge victory for the for union pacific is them so committing to thinking about it they're committed to begin thinking about it wow and you know, it's up to us to push them slowly into thought. You know, so I mean, 
I go back to the whole idea of building building a better river. Mm-hmm. The, you can't. What we're trying to do, at least what I feel like I'm trying to do, what I feel like Polar is trying to do, is to is to create a whole new vision of a river. Right. I mean, it's not. I mean, you can't just say, well, I mean, because the river now is a year-round river because it's most basically reclaimed water. You know, when there, in its natural form, there wouldn't be any water in the river now because it's summer and the, right. it's the dry season. But because it's all reclaimed water, it's a year-round river. So what? when you start talking about oh. the river of the future... You have to start thinking. Well, what do I want a seasonal river? I mean, it becomes a, a collaboration between humans and nature mm-hmm. to try to create a form that uh, that is conducive to health and to why and to community. And that form is, you know, nobody really knows how that's going to play out. I mean, the whole question of drought and the influence of, of that on the LA River. I mean, I've started to hear this term called one water. And I, to, in my mind, one water means that the L.A. River is connected to the Sacramento-San Francisco Bay Delta. And how, you know, because we're going to have to rely more on our, our local water supply, as, i.e. reclaimed water, yeah. as the Colorado River becomes more <coughs> problematic and the Bay Delta does too. You know, and so then what, again, you go back to that question of vision, you know, what is, what is the river you imagine? You know, and I, that's why I call it a postmodern river because it's not really—it's a river that is influenced by humans, but is not con- controlled by humans. Or, or if it's controlled by humans, you can't see that it's controlled by humans. I mean, vast sets of collaborations have to happen before the river is at peace. So that and that factors into the the grand plan. That's sort of the. Uh, the design that's supposed to be implemented at some point in the future, maybe, yeah. maybe 15, 20 years from now. No, nobody can say with any kind of certainty. I mean, I've, I've hundred years. Well, it could, <laughs> you know. I mean, but that's okay. The river will be there. Right, it'll be there. It's I mean, waiting. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's what you don't have to worry about. Is the river will be there? Well, I guess it was drought. Maybe it won't be there ultimately, but then we won't be there either. either. Right. So. You know, you have to oh, yeah. think in those large. You have to think in these larger terms. You know, larger senses of time. You know, and really imagine what it is that you want. And you know, and the political struggle becomes between people that want to see it. You know, like San Antonio River, which is not an ecologically sound river, but it's a good tourist river. They've got, or do you want it to be like the Esau River in Munich, which I saw a few years ago? Which is a, which is they have things. They even have surfing in the middle of the river, what? in the middle of the city of Munich, which they've created as uh, from two streams that are going through the city. You know, so the and what's natural? You know, what's if the, is that not natural? I mean, it certainly seems natural to the people that are surfing it. Yeah, that idea. That idea gets sort of uh, not, uh, not not no pun intended, but it gets diluted in terms of like <laughs> what it means because it's, it's it's like you're saying it's postmodern. It's not really. To, to say what is affected and what isn't is uh, it's, it's a very blurry line to the point where to distinguish it, it's kind of pointless. Yeah, I, I mean, but that sort of acknowledgement of those issues is people haven't really even begun to grasp it mm-hmm. or, or understand the implications, and I mean neither. You know, but I know that it's starting to happen. Something is happening, and we don't know what it is. No, but it's... Um, what it 
what it has to be is a collaboration. What we've had before was humans putting an absolute human stamp on everything. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a picture of the 1938 flood, which is a huge flood and dozens of people were killed, if you look at it, they it blew out the channel, the, the attempted channels. They were already trying to channelize the river. They didn't have the technology to do it at that point. Um, and the river is starting to curve, curve re, re, re-establishes itself as a winding river, a winding mm-hmm. river. You know, I mean, and ultimately, I mean, you know, like the cliche goes, nature bats last. So the, the river will become itself, you know, and we have to work with it so that we become ourselves too, in a way, you know, right. because the river is so central to the creation of a city and of a community, of a large scale sense of community. In a community that doesn't just be for humans, but for all the other creatures that live in this watershed, you know, that's there's a lot of thinking that has to go on. As I mean, the last time somebody had a single idea, they paved, they poured seventeen or three billion, three million barrels of concrete, and and had seventeen thousand people paving the river by hand. Jeez. So I think that you know, the at this point, the fact that people aren't really made up their mind on anything is yeah. a good thing. Is it sort of ironic to be working with the Army Corps now that the that the initiative is uh, they've picked up the um, the initiative to um, to redesign the river when yes. they they were themselves are the ones who put it in the condition that it is right now? Yes, it is uh, very ironic. I was I always counted myself among those who hated the Corps of Engineers the most. Right. And before I ever came to LA, I was working in water politics in Northern California, and I hated the Corps. And I've slowly begun to understand where we have things in common. The core has changed a lot uh, over the last few few decades because the president basically assigns names the head of the core and, okay. and and focuses the direction of the core. And since Bill Clinton, at least, uh, the core has the core leadership has been more influenced by habitat restoration issues than they ever have been before that. You know, and it's now it's down to the local district level. The LA district is very, very pro habitat restoration. You know, they're sort of gone way beyond the national headquarters on this very subject. Mm-hmm. You know, so and for me, it's like you know, gather your the the allies when you can get them. You know, and you know they're if they're willing to work in the same direction we are, then we love working with them. And if they don't, that's another story. Is a lot of that something where? Uh, you know, like in a hotel, they're like, "Oh, if if you don't want to, if you don't want to uh, wash your towels, leave them up on the uh, on the rack, yeah. and we will. It's better for the environment." But wink, wink. It's also cheaper for us to not wash them. Is there some extent where it's beneficial to them financially, and it just ha- it happens to coincide with it being ecologically sound as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, which is fine with me. I mean, if it right. works, that's a, that's a, that's great. And you, you know. I mean, there's irony upon irony if you really start to look at it, but, you know, and, and I do look at it, but they're, at this point, they're our allies, you know, and how they got to that point, how we got to this point is, you know, that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, if they're going to commit their vast resources, I mean, the Corps of Engineers has been around as long as the United States government has. Mm-hmm. I mean, they built the battlements at Bunker Hill. And they, their role, their power is immense, and and also their their commitment to flood control, flood detention is immense, and you, and there's just no way to to avoid them at this point in American history. 
you know, and they're they're serving a certain really powerful purpose, which is keeping it honest on a flood detention level, which is critical because there's millions of people living in the Los Angeles River. Right. People forget it, and then the, the rain comes, and suddenly there's all these bridges are washed out, and people are floating down the river in their cars. You know, because that, that doesn't happen very often. People quickly forget that it can happen. And, you know, that's part of the Corps' mission. And also, you know, they screwed up so many things over the last 100 years or so that they'll have work for the next 100 years just fixing their own mistakes. Yeah, it's pretty. I lived in Florida for a while, and that was a big deal was they were dredging the Apalachicola River, and it's just the problems it caused is just, like, immense to, the, every, yeah. to everything. And it's just... Yeah, there's so many problems that they the self-created in terms of. Yeah, you know, it's just it just is. I mean, the city of L.A. commissioned the brother the the Olmsted brothers, who were the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, who's sort of the father of landscape architecture, started the grad school of design at Harvard, and the Olmsted brothers were hired to create a plan for parkland plan for the city of L.A. back in the 1930s, and basically. The city got the plan from the Olmsted brothers and was like next because that's when the freeway systems were starting and when cars were taking complete right. dominance. And so the Olmsted brothers' plan was basically just ignored. But basically, what they proposed in great detail and a very interesting plan because it's been republished basically exactly what we're doing now. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, you know, except it was creating it rather than retrofitting everything. Wait, sorry, one more time? So it was basically more about creating parks on every water course in okay. the Los Angeles River, you know, which makes perfect sense Yeah. from a flood detention point of view as well as from a, an ecological point of view and a, a restoration point of view. and mm-hmm. every It works, but it's too late but it's for it to be anything but an example of something that shouldn't have been allowed to be ignored mm-hmm. here we are yeah, there's so many things that are uh, like it's weird how so many people are just now learning that the the best way to be ecological is to do the least yeah the, the, absolutely. absolutely and it's it's, it's terrible it's, again it's terribly ironic but the best conservation is the this, this idleness for the most part <laughs> that's it seems a good line. I like yeah. that but I think that that's true I yeah think, uh, you know I think that I mean, like I said, the last time the Corps decided to do everything, to, to follow one idea, was to pave the entire river channel. And I think that solutions will be different all along the river. I mean, there'll be places like the Frog Spot, but there'll also be places like San Antonio River. Okay. You know, there'll be, and there'll be big parks and small parks. I mean, they're already beginning. That's already starting with the railroad yards that have been shut down, the, mm-hmm. the Taylor Yard and the cornfield and becoming real parks yeah that that park the uh, the cornfield park you're talking about which is the park that's right by chinatown and it's uh off of what alameda right is that what it well, is north broadway yeah depends which way you're coming from north spring street from another direction it's basically between chinatown and the la river that hey i remember when that first opened and then how quickly it became just this for-profit park that got used for just as a as a stomping ground for as a venue it just turned over so fast we used to go hang out there and then next thing you can never go there because they're always having an event that's just destroying the park Uh, like it's not it wasn't a park but the new park i mean there's a lot of story and some i only know some of it i'm sure about that i mean the you should have seen the first plans. They were worse. Really? I mean, there was basically, you know, giant electric screens and you know, oh. uh, 
the nature yeah and et cetera et cetera and that was kind of defeated by the recession they couldn't it was too expensive to actually do and then the state parks told the park the state parks isn't used to doing things in cities Mm -hmm. so they had to sort of rethink who their own mission and the and the cornfield you know it was a huge battle i mean it was one of the defining moments for friends of the los angeles river I mean, we went up against the most powerful developers in Los Angeles, the mayor of Los mm-hmm. Angeles, and et cetera, et cetera. And to win, you know, they wanted to put a million feet of tilt-up warehouses in the cornfield, yeah. and we were able to stop that from happening. And but to create what was the vision of the park to come was really was battled over for years. And then it got to the point where the state parks told the told the L.A. division that if they could raise a million dollars, then they could actually do the park the way they were meant the, the park ought to be, which is basically trees and grass. Right. And so these raves, I mean, which drew as many as sixty-five thousand people for the, a couple of years, they raised a million dollars, which they had to turn over to state parks, and state parks then gave them the okay to move on and recreate this real park. Which is so, what they're doing now. So all those events there, the money from those events was going back into that. Yeah, was, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, it was so uh, I guess I forgive them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of those things. Like, how do you, you know, how do you do it? How you know, yeah. you're in a time where there's not very much money. You're trying to figure out how. You know, this was one of the ways. I mean, it was because I I walk and run there and have free since it opened, and it was very dismaying to see because every time they would do some kind of a big performance, they would. It would just destroy everything. Yeah, it's trampled. Yeah, everything was trampled. Mm-hmm. And but they got the money together, and it's not going to be like that. I mean, they're going to do smaller, big events. I mean, there's going to be a sort of sheep's meadow, like in Grand Central Park. I mean, in Central Park in New York, and that's going to be for some big, but, but not remotely as big of events as they're talking about. Yeah, as not- they've done now, but. You know, there's going to be one space, but there's also going to be some wetlands. I mean, one of the interesting things is this artist named Lauren Bond is creating a 70-foot-high water wheel, which is going to pump water out of the river into wetlands in the cornfield. So, you know, how that's going to work, only God can tell us. Mm-hmm. But, but it's it's going to certainly, the work has begun. You know, that, that park is going to, they're going to reopen the park in about, as a park in about, Four or five months, I think. Great. And it's basically, I mean, if, you, if they follow the plans, it's going to actually seem like a park, you know, with trees and grass. And maybe occasional rave music. Once. Yeah, well, <laughs> on a, sm- a smaller like scale. Bluegrass music or bluegrass. something like that. Yeah, bluegrass know. raves. Well, yeah, exactly. I want to take a quick break here and we'll come back. I want to ask you some stuff about uh, just some other stuff. in the wind You're probably in your car right now Or at the end of a long cruise Or a long bout with cancer Either way, you're my friend Thank you for listening to Twisting the Wind We're back! We're front. Mm-hmm. 
Back and front, yeah. Front to the river, back to the recording. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about uh, how, how did you get into the whole the whole water politics scene? Because it's very specific, especially for someone who, uh, well, your personal history is, like you said, performance art and as a poet and a, a performance artist. It just seems like something that's not exactly linked to that, you know? Um, I've been involved in politics since I was a little kid. When my parents were the only liberals in North Dallas, North Dallas, yeah, okay, and um, so I've, I've politics has been in my blood. I mean, I was involved in the civil rights movement in the South in the early 1960s, in a minor way. I mean, I wasn't John Lewis or any kind of a hero, but I, mm-hmm. but I was a teenager who was really wanted to change the, the culture of the South and the, the United States. Was that something that was that came from your parents? You feel like that was something. My that... parents didn't really appreciate this. They thought I would go. It was the beginning of their convinced that I was going nuts. They would send me to psychiatrists. And, really? Yeah. Because of what? Because it's a complicated story, but you know, it's partly because of the civil rights movement stuff that I was involved in, mm-hmm. and partly it was just uh, they didn't like my girlfriend. You okay. Know, so more like that. You know, so I was involved, but uh, I mean, I was the, I, I wrote all the PRs for the, for the Dallas chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality. I mean, I still wince when I think about this callow 16-year-old white boy, like, as a spokesperson for a civil rights organization, right. even in a small, small town way, because Dallas was a small town, essentially, in those days. You know, so I was involved in the civil rights stuff, and then when Vietnam War came along, I got involved with SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, and protesting the war, and turned in my draft card. And was this still in Dallas? Partly in Dallas, partly in Buffalo, where I lived, was going to graduate school. And Buffalo, New York? Yeah. What school was that? State University of New York. Okay. Buffalo. It had a huge program of poetry teachers and poetry teaching at that point, and I was part of that. I got... I got my master's teaching idiots how to write what they decided were poems. <laughs> it was. Do they know that at the time? Is <laughs> you know, it was it was at a time when Governor Rockefeller wanted to emulate the state state of California system when you paid sixty dollars to go to school for a year tuition at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were trying to do that in the New York system, and so they hired they created vast programs and things like creative writing and I was just you know I went there to Buffalo because there were a lot of really great poets that were teaching there and working there and so <laughs> I went that was my poetic education but I was already really involved and you know those guys were my heroes Burroughs and Ginsburg mm-hmm. and Kerouac and all those guys you know, I mean I was you know a generation younger but I was they were the huge influence on me you know, but I always had this politics part going on at the same time, and eventually, and I lived in this little town, and I got elected to the Public Utilities Commission, and which is sometimes when I think about, you know, I had absolutely no qualifications whatsoever, but it certainly <laughs> didn't stop me. And you know, I started to learn about water and politics. I mean, I'd always been involved with politics, but I hadn't. It wasn't until I moved to Bolinas around 1970. Which is, that's near San Francisco, right? Yeah, it's a little town north of San Francisco. It's a beautiful, remains one of the most beautiful places I've ever What's it called? Bolinas. Bolinas. Yes, it's like uh, an hour's drive north from San Francisco on extremely windy mountain roads. 
Um, you know, so I was involved in politics in Bolinas, and we stopped a big Corps of Engineers project as a as a as a community that we're going to build a, a outfall pipe uh, three quarters of a mile out into the ocean off the beach with raw sewage. Ugh. Just the way the Corps operated. That sounds like a like a some kind of a movie or something. It's so disastrous. No, a sewage pipe that extends out into the ocean. Yeah. Wow. Right where the tides would bring it back into the. Oh, perfect. Here. Yeah, it was perfect. For the Corps. <laughs> That's why I hated the Corps so much. Yeah. You know, they would never do a project like this now. Oh, well, they would get crucified, right? I mean, yeah, that's like a yeah. thing where. Yeah, exactly. It's just I mean, times have changed. Um, but anyway, so I was involved in politics then, and I was when I moved to L.A. I was. I I had got a marriage had gone south and I was just sort of doing I was hanging out in punk clubs even though I was like a decade older than anybody else. This is in LA like in the 80s? No, this is in San Francisco in North okay. Beach. Uh, there was a club called the Mabuhe Gardens which was like the punk central and I used to do performances there along with uh, you know you ever hear of Jim Carroll who's a poet? Yeah, Jim Carroll was the Jim Carroll band. Yeah, Jim yeah. started the the Jim Carroll band and these this series of performances that he and I and a guy named Bill Talon, the Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping, uh, we put on at this club. And you know, so that's when I learned to kill for the stage because people would throw shit at you. You know, they would throw stuff at you. Yeah, oh, really? but that was sort of part of the scene, right? That's sort of yeah, it was sort of was, what you were supposed to do. You know? Yeah, I mean, like a few years earlier, or a few was it? Would I say earlier or later? I would say earlier, I was on the fringes of the factory scene in the Warhol era. Okay. And the back room at Max's Kansas City was kind of Warhol's clubhouse, and they had chickpeas on the table, and people would throw all the chickpeas at each other. You know, so it was kind of a thing. I don't know what you what it meant, but atmosphere of mutual disrespect. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> I like that. You know, so anyway, so when I got to L.A., I found I didn't even hadn't even heard of performance art exactly. I mean, I, what I was doing was another kind of poetry, which was just standing up there without knowing what I was going to do and starting to make up a poem and make mm -hmm. up poems. Sometimes there was water in the pool and sometimes there wasn't. So, you know, but when I got here, it was sort of the heyday of performance art. And I was, through some odd circumstances considered a performance artist because I was doing these things without a net and so when I saw the LA River for the first time I knew that I was going to be involved with it for the rest of my life because of a lot of reasons because just on yin and yang principles that it was such a disaster that it had to get better uh -huh. and but somehow I knew that it was going to be my fate to be involved I, I mean I didn't, couldn't hadn't worked out the specifics obviously but it just felt right. It just felt like, you know, it just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. You know, so and then you know, and then it took about 20 years before anybody was paying, well, say 15 years before anybody was paying the slightest attention to what we were trying to propose. Mm -hmm. This guy wanted to put a freeway in the river. Named in George the river? Katz. Yeah. And just, like sort of just goes along the river? Yeah. Like yeah. a casual freeway, just like a fun freeway? You can use it. <laughs> you <laughs> well, want he saw it as a truck. You know, he would take trucks off the road and okay. send them down the L.A. River. And that we stopped that from happening. It was an idiotic idea, and it was the guy just wasn't thinking, you know. Mm -hmm. And he's actually still involved in politics in California. A guy named Richard Katz, and um, you know, I just it was just a, something I saw, you know. And it was 
doesn't didn't really make much sense in a way but then when i you know thinking back it made all the sense in the world it was all the stuff i knew how to do bringing it together Mm -hmm. i mean i've always been on the cusp of poetry and politics since i was a kid you know so i'm as a poet highly influenced by people like shelley or yates or people that were that was that was a part of their lives and they were firebrands as well in some extent yeah essentially i mean yates was a firebrand i mean his poems influenced the shape of the irish government Mm -hmm. and he for that he was made the head of education in the free state of ireland you know and and wrote some of his greatest poems a poem called among school children is a great poem about being that smiling public man and you know uh, those things are what influences me i'm not influenced by environmentalism at all i mean i don't see what i do as being a, i'm not a, never considered myself an environmentalist particularly. Oh, that's interesting i feel like i'm an infrastructuralist or something because i sort of see what we're doing as being creating a new kind of infrastructure that, okay you know, so you know it's all highly uh, subjective what i'm saying in a way and personalized but you know that's the broad outlines the broad strokes it's good though. I mean, it's it's better because some to some extent, like when I, hear, when I hear what you're saying about how you uh, got into the river as almost like a piece of performance art, yeah. makes me think about there's so many great works of art and just things that have happened that seem sort of insurmountable or incredibly difficult that people were able to do because they were able to detach it from from a goal and make it more of something they're just sort of almost either doing for themselves because they want to because it's enjoyable or doing it for a for a friend or like yeah, I, I think I compl- everything you're saying around yeah. that i completely agree with that's exactly the, my motives i mean i was hugely influenced by a couple of artworks of spiral jetty in the great salt lake by an artist named robert smithson mm-hmm. who's a quarter mile long spiral jetty in the that juts out from the side of the Great Salt Lake, which is an amazing work of art. And I was influenced by a German artist named Joseph Boyce, who sort of, in his own way, created performance art. And at the same time, he started the Free University of Berlin and uh, started one of the founders of the Green Party in Germany and, you know, and was a kind of magician. And so, you know, guys like that were who interested me and influenced me. And again, it was, like you're saying, I mean, it was enjoyable. You know, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't. I mean, it wouldn't have been possible to do it. And also, you know, there was a way that you just, people laugh at you, you know, but then eventually they're laughing with you. you know? Right. Yeah, that makes sense because it becomes a thing where it's, it's, if it's already ridiculous, then... yeah. It's a great place to start from. Yeah, no, that's always been my my approach. The more ridiculous, the more likely of success. Yeah, because there's no there's no like goal. There's no you have to get this done. You have a right, and it scares people to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so and I, so I think that thinking and I wasn't I wasn't conscious of it at the time, but to say a forty year art work, then people are kind of like, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. You know, so that allows you to not be threatening. So yeah. I think that was one of the things that this groundwork making pieces, parts of what I do, was creating an idea that people could not be threatened by, but could be intrigued by. So it's like truly subversive because it's something that's uh, it's getting in there without, before you know it, it's, it's actually worked its way yeah. into the uh, the system and done 
actual there's been some sort of change has been affected yeah and uh, well, you got it right yeah. from my point of view you know, it's, no, it's, uh, that's the idea uh, do you are you familiar with any sort of like greater water issues in the country as far as like involved with people like T Boone Pickens and Nestle Corporation buying yeah, up uh, I'm gener- generally speaking I'm pretty aware of it I mean I, I think it's highly dangerous situation maybe could you like, maybe just explain that because I feel like I have a little handle on it but I don't really that's probably how much I have too okay I mean, basically I mean as I understand what's happening is people are basically buying up water supplies mm-hmm. you know underground water aquifers any place where there's water there's guys willing to buy it up and sell it to you you know and I see that as, you know, a huge issue to come. I don't think people are conscious of it. Though. No, they're really not, because yeah, it's just kind of a fly. It's happening in a way that people just aren't, they don't see it. They don't realize that they're, the yeah. Nestle now owns their municipal water supply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, the drought will, people will be a lot more conscious, I would say, of water issues in the years mm-hmm. to come. But this is a profound one. You know? I mean, you know, all you have to do is read Dune, you know. And, you know right. I mean, I have a a poem about seeing Earth as the new Mars, a planet that died a long time ago. You know, and I, that that's certainly possible. You know, I mean, but I mean, the, I, you know, you then you deal with governance issues. You know, like who? I mean, California has never had has never us. What what is the word I'm looking for here? Um, California has never governed its water its underground water supplies. It hasn't. It's the only state in the West where, they, where water supply is not under some sort of jurisdiction. Under Underground water is not in some sort of jurisdiction. You know, but I think that that's going to change in this session of the legislature because these things are starting to become matters not just of aesthetics, but of uh, survival. Yeah. Because the population keeps growing and the amount of water is shrinking. It's just... Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, that stuff is really... I mean... You know, I'm too old to be scared about stuff like that because I'm probably not going to be alive to see it, but you can certainly see it already in terms of what people are want, interested in doing. You know, right. when controlling water is like controlling oil. It's the same thing. I mean, yeah, maybe even more more powerful. Yeah, ultimately. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to... without oil, but I don't think we can live without water. Yeah. Well, is there anything, uh, just to close up here, is there anything that I just want to be able, people want to look into Fuller and be able to help out? And, and also just in general, because a lot of people who listen who don't live in Los Angeles, like probably most people, and in terms of like this, what's going on with Fuller and the Friends of the LA River, and what's the things that have happened here, how they are also happening other places and... Well, I, that's a good question. It's kind of too large in a way for me to be able to answer it very with any kind of precision. But, I mean, people are always asking me what they can do to help in terms of the L.A. River. Mm-hmm. And um, I just tell them to take a walk on the river, and the river will tell them what to do next. Got it. You that know? makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so, but from people that are in other places... You know, check your local rivers. See how see how beautiful they are. You know, the Los Angeles River. You know, most of it's pretty ugly, but it exists, and someday it'll be beautiful again. The river, but the river will be there either way, whether it's ugly or beautiful. Right. And you know, so we have time in that sense. You know, and and just and it's good and healthy to take a walk along the Los Angeles mm-hmm. River or along the river for your community. 
I'm giving a talk at uh, at an Urban Rivers conference in New York in October. You know, and that's the first sort of conference like that that I don't, there probably have been them, but I haven't been invited to them. Is it in New York? Yeah, it's going to be in the Bronx. Are you familiar with a guy, James Howard Kunstler? He's a writer, new urbanist writer. No, I don't know. I interviewed him in the podcast a while ago, but he, he lives in New York, and he writes a lot about how due to the shrinking amount of uh, expensive fossil fuels, how rivers will become a um, much-needed form of transportation once again. Uh-huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, he's I really that about that, yeah. I don't know if the guys work. That's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. I okay. mean, you know, this is a good time to be exploring the meaning of water, you know. I mean, it's people it's kind of on more people's minds, you know, and people start to see how it relates to them personally, and then then the panic sets in. Mm-hmm. No, but I think that, you know, I would, I mean, there's nothing like taking, a, I mean, my coming here at the Frog Spot, I, that, you know, thinking about what people can do, they can, the next time they're in Los Angeles, come to the Frog Spot and see one solution to what to do in an urbanized, highly urbanized river system. You know, and it's more like a kind of an ancient tent. It's sort of, a, I sort of see this as an oasis with a big tent and Right. It's simple. It's, it's a simple, simple thing, yeah. but it, it does a lot. Yeah, well, that's we are, that's what we're working on, and so far, so good. You know, whether we... I mean, the real issue, I think, for us is going to be come October 1st when our lease on this property, which is an old, just an old warehouse with mm-hmm. a backyard, I mean, just a dump where people dump stuff for years, whether we can afford to rent it, keep it going through the winter, and right. that's a good idea. We don't, you know, who knows... And it's definitely a work in progress, just like the Los Angeles River is, just like Polar is. Got it. Well, thanks for talking to me, Lewis. Interesting conversation. Great. And I'll, I'll uh, put links up to your uh, your books and everything so that people can uh, check them out. No, I, I, you have some ideas.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.